Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Swinney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Our next guest has the philosophy, well, when everything else is closing, let's open up. It is the president and CEO of Krispy Kreme Donuts, Mike Tattersfield. And I say that because he's coming to us from the first ever global flagships shop in Times Square. And Mike, thanks for joining. I have to tell you a story. I walk to work these days and I turned a corner the other day. And I literally stopped in my tracks. And I think you know why. I th- it was because yep. for the first time I saw the storefront and I did not realize that Krispy Kreme was coming to Times Square. And it literally made me stop. It was the best thing that I had seen in a long time. There's something about donuts and particularly Krispy Kreme donuts that just puts you in a good mood. Yeah. Oh, it's amazing. I'm in the shop right now. I'm looking at our the world's largest uh, hot light which is just, uh, you know about Krispy Kreme, when the hot light's on, the donuts are hot, right? So um, uh, it's probably the coolest shop, donut shop I've ever been into, uh, and the team has just done an incredible job. What, Paul, if you don't mind, I'll just set it up a little bit more. It's in the old Colony Building, which is a very, very famous landmark building in New York and housed you know, musicians and uh, groups of songwriters for decades. And, and then it became other things, but now it's Krispy Kreme. Mike, talk to us about why you would be opening a flagship store in Times Square at a time when it, we don't know when tourists are returning. We don't know when Broadway is going to reopen. Yeah, well, we've been working on this for three years. We're in for New York for the long term. Um, uh, this location's incredible. You know, the only thing that we've done during the pandemic is uh, a little bit of a delay from uh, May when we were originally supposed to open up till September. We did open up four more shops in New York at the time, and we learned a lot about the safety procedures that needed to happen in the pandemic. That's where I spent a lot of my time is making sure all Krispy Kremers are safe. But at, at the end of the day, we're going to be we're ready now. We've understood how the operating platform is, particularly in New York City. And we see the potential of uh, starting to open up now. And it's not just for, you know, the retail experience is unbelievable. You know, you've got this, uh, the world's uh, largest waterfall glazer, right? You've got some really interesting things. There's two production lines going. There's one production line that um, uh, we have a side door where you can actually get your donuts on the street. Um, uh, so that's pretty interesting for folks that might not want to walk indoors, uh, if you think about it in today's world. But it's also one of our responsibilities is uh, how you continue to evolve your business model. And Krispy Kreme starts with a hot light. It can deliver to a fresh shop. It can deliver to a wholesale shop, fresh donuts daily. And then it can continue with a potential another channel that we just launched um, um, in Walmart, which is an extended shelf line. And we opened up that plant in Iowa in April and May and launched in Walmart last week or three weeks ago and can't keep up the demand. Now, we're a global brand. Yeah. So, you know, the flagship, you know, for New York City, that is a global site for the rest of the how everybody in Krispy Kreme looks at it. So, we, you know, we believe in New York. We're really comfortable. And we think operating is how you're going to learn a lot of new ways of uh, uh actually going to market and what consumers are actually asking for all the time, whether that be delivery or access, right? We just did a new deal with Dwayne Reed, for example. So, Mike, just overall, how has your business been impacted 
by the pandemic and what changes have been forced to make? Yeah, so, so you know, clearly in uh, February when we saw the pandemic coming, I spent a lot of time in my shop. A lot of that was be, to be safety-oriented. Could we operate? We needed to see if there was a consumer demand since it was such a craveable product. And there was. You know, and it was uh, pretty evident to us early on that our customers wanted us. And we could operate under this environment, even when our doors were closed, were masked, because we could operate our drive through And, you know, we shifted our marketing plans to be much more into acts of joy where we serve the community, examples of uh, the hospitals or the healthcare I'm a business. For anybody in the healthcare, if you showed a badge, you'd get donuts for free on Monday, as many as you wanted. Um, that gives you an example. We did neighbors when you were constrained for another idea where you could drop off an extra dozen that you got for free if you bought a dozen and dropped it off to your neighbor's safety. And we started to do ideas like that, which really, really generated and, and uh, connected with our guests. Uh, I'll tell you the U.S. businesses, that's where we're really relevant right now in this conversation. Uh, as we did Act of Joy is what we call them, and we complemented that with really great donut innovation. Um, uh, our top line in the U.S. has been up double digits since the pandemic wow, and okay. continues. Um, uh, our bottom line is also up double digits. So when we're talking about how are you still expanding, well, we have, we've been able to do this in an environment that's very challenging. Mike, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Mike Tattersfield, President and CEO of Krispy Kreme Donuts, calling in from their flagship store, which they are just opening in Times Square, New York. So it's nice to see, Vani, somebody making a you know a retail uh, commitment in the heart of New York City during this pandemic. Absolutely, and it really does stand out. I mean, I guess particularly at a time when there aren't too many tourists around, but it has you know the bright green and red. And again, it is nice to see somebody you know yeah, trying I mean, to make something good out of a, a bad situation. And, uh, definitely yeah, it's interesting to hear Mike talk about the finances, you know, kind of top and bottom line up uh, pretty strongly. So I guess it's a it's a little bit of a comfort food. It's similar to maybe to what we're seeing in, you know, pizza. The, the pizza shops have seen uh, sales up uh, pretty dramatically, both local pizza shops and the national chain. So uh, everybody's adapting, including their diet. The 2020 political election season is kicking into high gear. We have the Democratic National Convention taking place this week virtually. To get the latest on this uh, upcoming uh, election season, we welcome Wendy Schiller, professor of political science and public policy at Brown University. Professor Schiller, thanks so much for joining us. I'd love to get your thoughts on the first virtual uh, convention that we've experienced in this country. Uh, What are your takeaways? You know, I, I think I veer between being someone who's older and is sort of used to these sort of big party type, you know, celebratory conventions with lots of long speeches and thinking about, you know, the digital age and also thinking about voters between the ages of basically 18 and 35. And that voting rate is typically about 48 percent of all registered voters. You know, the Democrats have to get that up. But in general, that block has to vote more. Um, so when you think about communications to that block of voters, digital is actually really appropriate. Digital makes sense. This is the way, even as a teacher, this is the way students learn. And so it's a pretty, it's, it's an experiment and there are some glitches, but I think it's a smart move. There's been an effort to 
put on a show of unity at the Democratic National Convention this year, Wendy? I mean, obviously there always is, but in particular this year, as opposed to talking about some of the scandals or maybe the the US mail service, for example, is that the right strategy? Well, you know, Ivana, you're pointing out something really important, and I thought there was uh, maybe a too subtle a shift from night one to night two. But night one was clearly the two most important voting blocks for Joe Biden uh, are certainly African-American voters. We know that the turnout was anywhere from 58 to 60 percent in 2016, well below 2012 and 20, 2008. The, the, Joe Biden can't win unless that turnout gets basically above 64 percent. The second group, of course, are the Bernie voters, the Bernie supporters who sat out 2016. Bernie Sanders was enthusiastic. He popped right through that screen and he was much, much stronger for Joe Biden than he was Hillary Clinton. The These are the two groups of voters that if Joe Biden can get to turn out, he can be much more competitive in the Midwest, probably flip one or two of those states uh, and, and maybe win. So that was really smart on night one. Night two was a little bit flatter. It seemed like they were a little confused about what the message was, but they honed in in the second hour uh, for older voters, maybe a mistake, but certainly on the economy and health care, in particular health care. So, Vani, I think that's the question mark. Can they really come out of the convention with a very simplified campaign theme? It cannot be just anti-Trump. Uh, because the levels of enthusiasm for Trump are greater than the level of enthusiasm for Biden. And people are more likely to vote for somebody than against. They need to have a platform, and the platform has to be health care, the economy, and COVID. So we'll see if they can hone in on that message in, in the remaining two nights. Well, in terms of the COVID, uh, COVID pandemic, President Trump and the administration, the strategy, I'm not sure if it's just ignoring the pandemic, but certainly underplaying it. Is that still a winning strategy for him and for his base? I think that's the big question mark. I think people are exhausted from the hardships of COVID, not just unemployment and um, and sort of the economy, but also just the, the way we live our lives. And also now with children at home because of delayed school, and then of course college students, we know that fewer than 40% of people go to college, but still it's a, a chunk of people, and those students are now home with their parents as opposed to um, uh, at school. So a lot of people are feeling COVID in all sorts of ways every day. And so that's the question mark for Trump. Is that feeling a good feeling the next couple months? No, it's not. Is it a feeling that will never end? Yes. So that's the big question mark, particularly among suburban voters and independents. You know, have you done enough and why are we in this position, you know, so much longer after the beginning of the pandemic? And what is there an end in sight? So Trump will emphasize vaccines. He'll emphasize that he's working on it, which they have been working on it. And clearly he'll try to run a campaign of optimism that things will get better. He's done it once before on the economy. He'll do it again. Wendy, what happens with the U.S. Postal Service? Well, this is fascinating, and I think this is a misread by the Republicans of their own voting base. We know that in the last uh, 20 years, uh, presidential cycles, uh, senior citizens, or people over the age of 65, 10 Republicans, between 8 and 12 points towards Republicans, not Democrats. And the largest percentage of people who vote by mail are seniors people over the age of 65. So the Republicans underestimated the extent to which they were cutting off their nose to spite their face, right? You, you mess with the post office. Older people like their mail. They like hard copy, they like to know where their post office box is. And you take it away and make it angry. So I think that's what happened. There was a backlash. The second important thing is that so many people will vote by mail that members of Congress, state legislators, governors, they all want to know if they got elected on election night. They don't want to wait. They don't want there to be delays. They don't want any hassles. So they want to know. So they want those ballots returned turned as badly, I think, as uh, Joe Biden wants the ballots returned. So 
Let's just go real quickly, uh, Professor, to polling. I, I, for one, after Brexit and after the 2016 election, I have no or very little faith in polling. Yet polling seems to be very strongly in the favor of former Vice President Biden. How should we think about the polling here going into this election? I always think of polling as consistency. You know, so are you looking at a consistent edge that doesn't seem to shake among particular uh, groups of voters? And in that case, I just mentioned seniors. So for the first time in 20 years, Biden is tied essentially um, in some polls with Trump among people over the age of 65. Seventy two percent of those people vote. So that's a number I'm watching really closely. And that's a number I'm trusting because it's been pretty accurate for a very long time. So if that number holds and Biden can keep that advantage, you're looking at a much tighter contest in Florida and Arizona than anybody expects. As far as the Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin polls, I don't believe them at all because they were wrong last time. And even though the pollsters tell us they fixed it, I don't think they have fixed it. And I think it's better for the Democrats, honestly, strategically, if Joe and Biden is either tied or a little bit behind uh, Trump. Republicans vote. They get out the door. They are very reliable. Democrats, as we've seen, fall off and they don't always vote. So if there is a lead for Biden, I think that's a bad situation going into the election for um, for the Democrats. Yes. But this is a different dynamic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, mail-in voting changes everything. Wendy, thank you. Wendy Schiller, Chair of Political Science at Brown University. Always love speaking with you. It is time now for Bloomberg Opinion, a very fascinating opinion piece out today talking about vaccine supply chains. We're going to need to talk a lot about them and plan for a vaccine supply chain. Let's bring in one of the people who wrote about it now, Professor of Economics at the Mercatus Centre. Sorry, Professor of Economics. Let's start again. Scott Duke Commoners is Associate Professor of Business Administration at Harvard Business School, Cambridge, Massachusetts. You had been going to be joined by your colleague. That's why I was getting that mixed up. Talk to us about these supply chains. Capitalism should be able to solve these problems very readily, very quickly. And yet we saw with the likes of PPE that it didn't. What should give us confidence that for supply chains, capitalism will work? Well, so first of all, there's a question of what you need for capitalism to actually make supply chains work. Um, And the problem is we, you know, as with PPE and and now to some degree, also with vaccines, we're asking two contradictory things of companies at the same time, right? We're asking for substantial investment and scaling up of their their production processes and technologies, uh, which again, remember, takes time normally, right? It's not possible to just immediately, you know, double the, the number of factories you have. Uh, but at the same time, remember, we're doing that in an environment where uh, we want the companies to be providing goods at low prices, right? We wanted the, uh, the price of PPE to, to stay down. And similarly, um, you know, both for, you know, you know, for political and, and social reasons, uh, you know, companies that are investing in these vaccine production processes are also promising sort of lower prices, selling more at cost, and so, or closer to at cost. And so when we do that, there's not as much of an incentive for them to you know, build up capacity because the market sort of isn't giving that signal that you need, you know, the additional price to, to subsidize the addition or pay for the additional cost. All right, let's go there, Professor, because I am very confused about the whole pricing aspect of this vaccine. Is, and, and, and you say that's important because it goes to incentives for, you know, uh, ensuring that production and, and the supply chain is there. What is your sense of kind of how this likely will play out in terms of pricing this thing? Well, it's hard to know in the long run, but at least at the moment, um, companies are, many of the companies, uh, including a number of the, the leading vaccine producers, uh, Johnson & Johnson, AstraZeneca, Pfizer, have been announcing commitments that their plan is to sell vaccines at or just barely above 
of us sort of not try to profit over the, uh, you know, over the initial distribution, um, you know, at least for the duration of the pandemic. So where do you see the most fragilities in the system? So there are many. Um, Part of the problem is the vaccine supply chains have many different links. um, And there are sort of, there's a lot of links at the, you know, sort of in the middle, you know, sort of when we're, uh, that we're, that we're thinking about very actively. So um, there's been a big investment, for example, in producing the types of glass vials that we use to actually distribute vaccine doses, right? You think when you're, you know, in syringes also, you know, when someone, you know, sticks a vaccine in your arm, they pull it out of a, you know, a sanitary glass vial using a, a syringe, and those we need, you know, sort of roughly in proportion to the number of people who are receiving the vaccines, of course. So you need a lot of individual glass vials and syringes, even if you can put a few doses per vial. Um, those we've actually seen a lot of scale up already. You know, sort of, uh, it, it's very salient. We've had problems with in the past. Sort of nobody wants vaccines to not be distributed because of lack of, of glass and syringes. Um, but at the top of the chain, there are still real challenges. So vaccine production processes are very complicated. Um, and they rely often on, uh, you know, sort of very rare, uh, you know, molecules and, and inputs. Um, so, you know, for example, there's a there's a, a molecule called LAL that's used to detect toxins that are sort of released in the vaccine production process. And you have to you have to not have those toxins. So you have to test every vaccine and also the the vials and their stoppers and so forth to make sure that you didn't pick up any of these toxins. Um, and this, you know. The only natural source of LAL comes from horseshoe crabs, uh, and pharmaceutical industry already, uh, you know, harvests about half a million crabs, and and it's in their blood. So you basically, you know, draw blood from horseshoe crabs and then release them back into the ocean. That's so disgusting. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know, right? It, no it, offense it, to the it, horseshoe crabs. No, exactly, and and they're doing they're doing an incredible service, right? Could you imagine yeah. if like your blood had a molecule that was needed to to save lives? Um, and, uh, you know, but horseshoe crab populations, you know, of course, you know, fluctuate across years. And, and if you have to suddenly draw a lot more horseshoe crab blood, that means harvesting many more crabs and, and you know, it, it affects ecosystems as well. Uh, similarly, there's a, there's a key component that's used in some vaccines to, you know, sort of help stimulate the body's immune response that comes out of shark liver oil. It's called squalene. On uh, both LAL and squalene, you know, there are... Um, you know, ways of synthesizing them, but this hasn't been done at scale. They're relatively new uh, um, and, and sort of, you know, recently approved. And so we have to, like, really figure out, you know, how do you, you know, produce these at the scale that we're going to need now. All right, Professor, um, you, you, you put all of these things together. Do you think the supply chain will be ready for some level of meaningful production? Call it first half of 2021. Uh, the answer is it will be if we invest very heavily. Right. Um, you know, this is this is a real case for public investment in supply chain and supply chain integration. We have to invest in lots of different chains for different types of vaccines at once. Right. So there are a bunch of different vaccine platforms that are all being sort of pursued simultaneously because we don't know which vaccines are going to work first. Uh, and we need to be scaling all of that now. Right. We have to be ready to distribute. Who, coordinate, who coordinates that? The is that the is that the World Health Organization or who coordinates all of that? Uh, great question. Uh, so some amount of this is being coordinated by the World Health Organization uh, jointly with uh, CEPI, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, and Gavi, uh, which is a you know a vaccine alliance for um, you know distributing vaccines to lower income and developing countries. Um, 
you know, there, there is sort of like a, an international collaboration effort going on um, that's, you know, both responsible for sort of coordinating an investment in a lot of different vaccine portfolios, uh, sorry, vaccine candidates, sort of like a, a diversified portfolio to raise the probability we have one that works, and also sort of investing in that capacity to make sure that we can actually produce them. Uh, I should say, though, the U.S. hasn't joined in on these collaborative agreements yet. You know, sort of a lot of countries have, but, but not the U.S. as yet. I mean, is there somebody out there actually collecting horseshoe crabs? We're out of time, but I'm, I'm just so curious about this. <laughs> they are. There are people out there collecting horseshoe crabs. There are people out there building bioreactors or trying to figure out how you can repurpose them from other applications. Um, and, uh, you know, lots of people are working really hard on this in hopes of uh, getting the vaccines ready to be distributed on time. Yeah, I mean, gosh. Fascinating. I didn't – the horseshoe cr- crabs, that, that's a new one for me. Uh, hopefully – uh, we, we should can, induct uh, them into them. the Little Creature Hall of Fame or something. I mean, if they yeah, really exactly can do this, right. this Scott is... Scott Duke, commoners, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Scott's an associate professor of business administration at the Harvard B- B- Business School. Uh, maybe perhaps sometime a, a one-time or sometime a horseshoe crab uh, corraler or catcher. Uh, but we learned something uh, new that, A, the supply chain logistics of getting uh, a vaccines produced Distributed is just mind-boggling in its uh, complexity, uh, but as uh, Professor Commoner said, lots of smart people working on it. Well, this has been the week for the retail earnings to get a real sense of where the consumer is. And as we saw from a lot of the numbers, Walmart and Target today, the consumer in the most recent quarter was pretty, pretty good shape, spending money, a lot of that PPP money. But the real focus and the for- is the forecast going forward. And we had some divergent views on that. To kind of break it all down, we welcome Bert Flickinger, Managing Director, Strategic Resource Group. And Bert, I want to go to the forecast. I want to compare Walmart, which said, boy, the lack of PPP in the upcoming quarters is going to really be a, a headwind for our business. Whereas our good friends at Target today said, no, nah, that's not so much. We're looking pretty good in July and into August. How do you think this is going to play out for a lot of these retailers? Paul, uh, Walmart, to your point, is being conservative, and Target, uh, Walmart, and Lowe's uh, are all hitting on all cylinders. They're investing in advertising. They're investing in inventory. They're investing in people to take care of the customer, keep the shelves stocked, and they're investing in societal good uh, with Target and Walmart and BJ's and Amazon, world leader in solar. And from our surveys, uh, leading in renewables uh, shifts a lot of shoppers from uh, non-environmentally uh, responsible retailers uh, to the environmentally responsible retailers. So all being conservative, uh, Walmart stock's going to be $200 um, dollars, uh, by the end of the fiscal year in January, and Lowe's stock's going to be uh, over $200 at the same time, and, and Target's going to be close to 200 uh, by the same time, uh, all with conservative guidance. That's pretty amazing. Target in particular is, uh, you know, talking of a great game today, but are you saying that this will last, that this will last even if there isn't an immediate new round of stimulus? Even without stimulus, Bonnie, um, our strategic resource group research shows that um, uh, less than 50% of uh, food spending uh, pre-COVID was away from home, and now nearly 9% of food spending is at home. So as people are learning at home, working at home, uh, living at home, and realizing that buying food uh, at Target and Walmart uh, costs 25 cents on the dollar uh, versus uh, going to Burger King or Dairy Queen or someplace else, um, people are um, 
even without the stimulus, are using the tremendous savings uh, they're, they're getting on food and tremendous savings uh, by uh, li- living, working, educating at home. And that's creating a retail requiem and a renaissance uh, for tar- uh, Target, Walmart, and uh, Lowe's for the foreseeable future. All right, Target, Walmart, Lowe's. How about the small retailer? It, will there be any small retailers left? Mom and pop retailers, Main Street. I mean, is this trend, where's this going to lead us? Uh, Paul, full disclosure, uh, our, our family co-founded IGA and, and Red and White Worldwide and, and uh, the independent small food retailers will continue to do well nationally and internationally. Uh, restaurants, as you and Vani have reported well, uh, will struggle. And uh, the home improvement uh, small uh, retailers, do it, do it best hardware, Ace Hardware, will do well. And uh, what, what's uh, really creating a renaissance uh, for retail, too, is the landlords are be, being much more constructive in terms of helping uh, the, the better uh, small business uh, retailers uh, open in prime locations and city centers and urban areas. And in our work with International Council of Shopping Centers, uh, we're recommending that food-focused retailers take on abandoned Sears and department store sites, as Costco is doing in Naperville, Illinois, uh, BJ's is doing in uh, Long Island, uh, Target's uh, uh, doing in Monticello. And uh, even though Internet sales uh, have doubled uh, for a lot of these retailers, bricks and mortars, uh, over 80 percent, and uh, there's a real renaissance, even for the department stores focusing on home and tabletop, and that carries over to the small businesses too. What happens if you decide to not pay your rent? Who 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 gets you know rent relief at this point, Bert? I mean, is it the landlords that will have to take the? Uh, the hit or is it the retailers and you know we were literally just talking to a Krispy Kreme CEO they're opening in Times Square you you know that these rents were you know something like five million dollars a month for those types of buildings before the pandemic who knows what they are now but surely rent has to be a big factor in all of this. Uh, Vani, it's it's like the Chinese uh, c- uh, character, which is the same for danger as it is for opportunity, mm-hmm. and uh, they, that's what we're seeing is by not paying rent, uh, landlords uh, can can replace the non-rent payers uh, w- uh, with uh, better retailers. The other side that's really gone unreported is many of the retailers, even if they're paying. Uh, their bills to suppliers. They're not paying on time. They're not paying in full. So Walmart, Target, and Lowe's uh, pay their all their bills uh, net in full in 20 to 30 days, where the department stores have been paying, instead of 30 days, out 60, 90, 120 days. So for a branded supplier, uh, they're shifting uh, to who's paying, and the uh, landlords are shifting to who's paying, and that's changing the balance of power in retail quite so uh, the other thing that's changing the balance of power and retail that's been unreported is there's been pervasive price gouging uh, by many of the brand suppliers, especially the cereal millers, charging uh, twice as uh, more uh, per equivalent pound for cereal than people charge for many cases um, sizes of steak. So Target, uh, Walmart, Lowe's with great private label portfolios 
will shift people from brands and also uh, from a supply chain and logistics standpoint, in addition to a financial standpoint, raise consumers' standards of living so they'll have more to spend online with uh, those retailers with Mike Amen uh, running, running uh, Lowe's.com very well and his counterparts at Walmart and Target too, and at the same time shopping within, within the four walls. And it's leadership too, Vonnie and Paul. Uh, you have the dynamic team of, at Lowe's of Marvin and Sharon Ellison doing more for societal good than uh, anyone. They've committed $55 million to minority and, and small business owners, uh, to Paul's point, over $100 million to COVID. And doing societal good is really paying off with uh, Lowe's same-store comparison sales being uh, 10%, 10% high, higher than um, uh, Home Depot. And doing societal good for Walmart yep. and Target's paying. I, well, I think I think too. most companies in this day and age need to be doing something at the very least, and if not, a lot. Bert, thank you. It's always such a pleasure to speak to you. No better person to speak to you about retail. He's been in it for so long. Bert Flickinger is managing director at Strategic Resource Group. Joining us there. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.